Released in 2001 to near-universal acclaim, Alfonso Cuarón's Y tu mamá también tells a raucous tale of two young men. Tenoch and Julio, played respectively by Diego Luna and Gael García Bernal, who, after seeing their girlfriends fly off to Europe for summer vacation, embark on a sojourn of their own. A road trip across Mexico with an older woman, Luisa, played by Maribel Verdú. The supposed aim of the excursion is to show Luisa the remote and mythically named beach of Heaven's Mouth. But, seeing that Tenoch and Julio have such unbridled libidos, and that they are suddenly without their girlfriends, and that Luisa displays such interest in, and toleration for, their ribaldry-riddled humour, we might think that this movie will be a run-of-the-mill sex romp. But if we pay attention, we will know from very early on that this road trip is going to be about a lot more than just two very horny young men trying to seduce an older woman. Unlike the young duo who climax far too soon, Cuaron and his brother Carlos, with whom he wrote the script, know a lot more about the need for pacing. And over the course of the journey, we come to realise that Itumama Tambien will be about many other things, not least of which is society's connectivity, its affinities and disparities. This podcast will explore several films with moments similar to Quaron's film, and then examine how those films informed his themes and directorial style. Here is Quaron at a rather noisy Tribeca Film Festival in 2016, remembering his time in Mexico City, going to the movies in the 1980s and 90s. And that time in Mexico City was like a golden time in cine clubs. It was fantastic because you have a bunch of cine clubs, but together with that, you had the French Institute and the Goethe Institute from Germany getting cycles of French cinema and German cinema. And on top of that, Mexico had amazing relationships with the communist countries, so we have all this all this Eastern European amazing cinema from Baida to Tarkovsky, you know. The Bolshevik Revolution of October 1917 brought to an end almost 300 years of Tsarist tyranny, but ushered in an even more repressive communist ideology. Yet that brought something quite unexpected to the emerging medium of film. To Vladimir Lenin, cinema was a propaganda tool, but to others, Vezefalov Pudovkin, Sergei Eisenstein and Ziga Vertov, it was also an art. Yet, however revolutionary their films still are, it is to Lev Kuleshov that cinema owes a deeper and more lasting debt. As hundreds of thousands of white Russians fled to escape the red flag, they took with them what they could, but inevitably left behind more than they could bring. Which means family homes, histories and businesses were abandoned. One such enterprise was the production company of celebrated pre-revolutionary actor Ivan Majushkin. In what is surely one of the most impactful instances of found footage, Kuleshov took some reels of film from Majushkin's offices and appropriated them to prove a theory about montage. Kuleshov intercut images of Majushkin's face with various shots of a baby in a cot, a bowl of soup and a grave, all to suggest Majushkin was expressing different emotions. The Kuleshov effect was born, and in the decades since, Filmmakers as varied as Charlie Chaplin, Luis Buñuel, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Akira Kurosawa, Lucino Visconti, Stanley Kubrick, Agnes Varda, Steven Spielberg, Margareta von Trotta, Spike Lee, Wong Kar Wai, Sally Potter and Alfonso Cuaron have all been using juxtapositions to manipulate audiences.
But at one point or another, all those filmmakers felt restricted by the shot-reverse-shot formula, and so sought ways of communicating the same emotions by different means. Deep focus to differentiate between background and foreground, creating reflections within the frame to suggest two images at once, or simply using the long take and moving the camera. Throughout his incredibly diverse career, Quaron has repeatedly collaborated with cinematographer Emmanuel Lebesky. And while they rarely use deep focus, or indeed reflections, to create a second plane of action, the duo do deploy the long take and move the camera. A lot. Itumama Tambien, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Children of Men and Gravity, all contain sequences carefully choreographed for long takes and extensive camera movement. Itumama Tambien was filmed almost entirely handheld, and that feeds into Tenoch and Julio's spontaneous hedonism. But it is a moment with Luisa that the roaming camera comes to mean something else. Late in the film, the trio finally make it to the once mythical, but now very real, beach of Heaven's Mouth. As Luisa heads out to the water's edge, the camera goes with her, as if echoing the moment in François Truffaut's The 400 Blows, when, at the end, Antoine Doinel, played by Jean-Pierre Léo, escapes from the reform school, revels in his newfound freedom, and runs all the way to the sea. But while Quaron's camera moves with Louisa, the movement suggests mortality, a terminal. Louisa is reaching the edge of her life. Here is Quaron in 2014 at the Cannes Film Festival. Early on, Carlos and I were very, very clear that even before we finished the screenplay, that, that it was the search of this mythical beach, you know, and the, the social context start, started to inform the, 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 the film and the characters. This was as much as a coming of age of Julio and Tenoch, the two characters, as also the coming of age of a country. Uh, right before my country was going into the biggest transformations in the, in the recent history, that is the transformation for the first, uh, 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 the, the first elections, the first, you know, to become a democracy that we have now. Long before Luisa walks to the water's edge, a little over half an hour into the film, Quaron has his trio arrive late in the evening at a family-run hotel. The action begins with them getting out of the car and the camera following them as they walk inside to the restaurant. They sit down at the table and begin to chat. The conversation goes on for over two minutes, at which point a woman enters the restaurant and the camera then decides to follow her as she walks by the table and into the back parlour. There we see a number of other women drinking, dancing, washing dishes and preparing food. In another film, the woman would have been ignored, as she is completely unconnected to the plot, and indeed her presence has no impact on our trio. But by following the unidentified woman, Quaron is showing us lives lived by people just beyond the edge of the frame. And yet those lives are linked to what is happening on screen. An example of a film that managed something similar is Schindler's List. Leave your luggage on the platform. Clearly label it. He's on the list. He is. Well, let's find him. I'm sorry, you can't have him. He's on the list. If he were an essential worker, he would I'm not be on the list. I'm talking to a clerk. What is your name? Sir. The list is correct. I didn't ask you about the list, I asked you your name. Klaus Tauber. 
About 45 minutes into Spielberg's Holocaust drama, Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, goes to the train station in search of his accountant Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley. Schindler walks Stern back along the platform, but as they leave the station, trolleys laden with suitcases trundle across their path, and Spielberg and his cinematographer Janusz Kaminski decide to follow them as they are ferried into a side building. There, the suitcases will be emptied and the unpacked items tossed into a mountain of clothing, spectacles, shoes, jewellery, children's toys, family heirlooms, photographs, watches, necklaces, rings, diamonds, and then teeth. Each of them signifying a person murdered and that person's connection to the world. The idea of a roaming camera that wanders away from the protagonists in order to connect distant events is reminiscent of Lucina Visconti's early neorealist masterpiece, La Terra Trema. Ten minutes in, young Vanni Velastro, played by Antonino Michale, watches as the fishermen of Akizeta barter their catch. And while Vanni moves along the harbour, the camera loses sight of him, but nonetheless continues its own movement to show the fishermen trying to earn their livelihoods. Conventional storytelling would have had the camera follow Vanni, but had Visconti done that, we would not have seen the community's affinities and disparities, and had the little details mesh into a wider social context. Such an inquisitive camera was used in 1964 when Russian director Mikhail Kalatozov went to Havana to film Soy Cuba. Less a movie with a plot and more a propaganda piece about life before the revolution, Soy Cuba proved too revolutionary for both Castro and Khrushchev. So it wasn't until the 1990s, under the auspices of Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, that the film secured international distribution. And so it was at those same Mexico City cineclubs Cuadron mentioned that he first encountered the film. Here is Cuadron in 2010 speaking with Maria Delgado at the BFI. We want, uh, rather than creating uh, effect, we wanted to honor the moments. Mm. So the work with the actors was a completely different thing. Rather, rather than trying to craft a, a moments that they were, you were going to, to enhance through the effect of editing and montage, uh, with the actors it was about trying to create a moment of truthfulness mm. in which the camera was going to be just there to register that moment of truthfulness. And also the camera had to be distant, mm. so you didn't favor character versus environment. Mm -hmm. So it's a film that, in which basically there are no close-ups, everything mm. is very mm. wide uh, and, uh, uh, and allowing those moments to flow uh, without the, interrup the interruption of, 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 of editing. Paradoxically, Itumama Tambien is both connected to and stands separate from a cycle of films that emerged in the late 20th century. Although made in isolation from each other, they nonetheless presented a similar idea. The interconnectedness of everything. Hyperlink cinema is a term fashioned in an article Elisa Court wrote in 2005 for Film Comment. Court positioned certain films with several interlinking plots. That these films are then distributed around the world, where they are seen by other filmmakers, suggest an interlinking with yet more networks and narratives all cohabiting in the age of globalization. Late 20th century examples of this would include Krzysztof Kieślowski's Three Colours, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, 
and Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. In the New York Herald, November 26, year 1911, there is an account of the hanging of three men. They died for the murder of Sir Edmund William Godfrey, husband, father, pharmacist, and all-around gentleman resident of Greenberry Hill, London. He was murdered by three vagrants whose motive was simple robbery. They were identified as Joseph Green, Stanley Berry, and Daniel Hill. Green, Berry, Hill. And I would like to think this was only a matter of chance. And moving into the new millennium, we have Alejandro Iñárritu's Amores Perros, 21 Grams and Babel, Stephen Gagan's Siriana, Paul Haggis's Crash, Rodrigo Garcia's Nine Lives, the Wachowski's Cloud Atlas, Matteo Garone's Gamora, and, coming up to as recently as last summer, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Here is network theorist Slavoj Žižek linking Itumama Tambien to Children of Men. Children of Men is, in a strange way, a remake of Itumama Tambien. It's the paradox of what I would call anamorphosis. If you look at the thing too directly, the oppressive social dim dimension, you don't see it. You can see it in an oblique way only if it remains in the background. That is to say, if you look at the film superficially, foreground, it's just a sexual adventure with a desperate ending. But you cannot say it's really a movie about two young boys rediscovering their sexuality, the meaning of their life, whatever. It's the other way round. Like Children of Men, Itumama Tambien has only one story. But Quaron creates mini hyperlinks by using a disembodied and omniscient narrator. The narrator references things unconnected with the main narrative, refers to things that have happened before the film started, and towards the end, indicates some things that will happen after the film is over. So, while Itumama Tambien unfolds its single plot in a chronological manner, the narrator hints at parallel plots in multiple time frames. While for the most part, the voiceover suggests Tenoch and Julio are connected with society, at other times, Quaron flips this idea back on itself to show how disconnected the young men are from the people around them. About a half an hour into the trip, Tenoch and Julio try to explain to Luisa the meaning of their term Carolastra. Without prompting, they divulge all 11 clauses of the Carolastra Manifesto. The manifesto is supposed to be a secret, exclusive to members of their small coterie. This in itself sets the young friends apart from their contemporaries while immediately join Louisa into their affinity. She now knows of the society and its manifesto. After the friends have completed divulging everything to Louisa, she jokes that they should lobby the government with their policies. But Tanach and Julio dismiss all politicians as assholes, thereby rejecting their connection with wider society in favour of keeping their manifesto secret. However, there are two bigger secrets within the film. Louisa harbours one, one which he never divulges, but one to which the film keeps alluding by way of its references to death. And the other secret is the one we are privy to, but the one secret that Tenoch and Julio want to keep hidden. Here is Quaron from the same Cannes interview, explaining how the sex scene between the two young men came about. 
I was writing with Carlos, but conferring with, with Guillermo. So, so, so much that the resolution, the end, I was like, okay, I have all of this, but I, I don't find the, the, the point of connect. How is this going to, to be relevant thematically? He, he just says, man, these two have to kiss each other. They have to have sex with each other. It's what's going to happen. And then it's going to be all the shame, stupid shame because of all the baggage, cultural baggage that they have. You know, uh, but it was Guillermo. I remember that afternoon that you said, "Hey," and it was like, "Ah." Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> like all genres, the road movie is prone to tiresome cliche, but happily, Quaron's rambunctious direction ensured that his edition feels just as refreshingly spontaneous, energetic, and freewheeling as it did when it was first released 17 years ago. Yes, Itumama Tambien will soon be of age, old enough to legally drink, smoke, have sex, vote and stand for election. But hopefully, never while in control of a moving car.